0: Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sidman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Today, our co host is Arthur Wilczynski. He served in a variety of government spots, including at CSE. Uh, I just learned that he happened to be on the staff of the parliament at one point in time, helping the parliamentarians answer brutal questions or ask brutal questions. And uh, I can't think of a better person to talk to some of these topics about this week. Arthur, welcome back to Battle Rhythm. It's good to be here, Steve. How are you? Uh, besides this cold, I'm doing okay. Uh, I think. Uh, we'll talk first about this foreign interference stuff, not only because it's one of the most important issues being covered these days, but there's so much confusion. And you wrote an op-ed in the Ottawa Citizen, a great one, to help clarify this stuff. That is important, but it's more complicated than a he said, she said thing. So, uh, what were you trying to communicate, and what should Canadians know about the foreign interference story as you've been, as you see it?
1: So uh, there's a quite a number of, of complex threads that are coming together in the foreign interference story, and I think that that's uh, that was sort of the bottom line that I was trying to uh, to convey in my op ed, is that the partisan environment that is taking place, particularly within certain parliamentary committees and on the, on the floor of the House of Commons, uh, and in the in the in the media, has not helped uh, Canadians actually understand the threat from foreign interference its complexity, uh, how it affects uh, a wide range of communities. And while uh, foreign interference uh, by the People's Republic of China is what is making the news right now, there are other uh, states and hostile actors that are engaged and, and that we need to have an appropriate conversation where we treat intelligence in the way that it should be treated i.e. that it needs to be protected for a range of reasons that we in the government and government officials have responsibility to protect that information because the consequences of not protecting that information have uh, a negative effect on the individuals named in disclosures but also more broadly on some of the communities that uh, may be subject to things such as a dual loyalty trope and why this is not only something that needs to be looked at through the prism of federal politics but that this is a broad societal challenge where everything from municipalities, political parties, universities, uh, local communities are all affected by foreign interference. And that's why the argument that I made was that a, an independent uh, inquiry can look at the complexity of these issues and look retrospectively at what happened in the elections in 2019 and 2021, but more importantly, can provide effective recommendations on how to ensure our democratic institutions are resilient moving forward towards the next elections. So that's uh, summarizes it because I think that again, the tone and tenor has not been helpful. The only ones benefiting from the sort of the status quo in terms of the conversation are adversaries of democracy uh, in places like the uh, People's Republic of China, but elsewhere as well.
0: So, I have a student, Marshall Palmer, who defended his dissertation in December, and his dissertation was about foreign election interference. And one of the key starting points of this is that foreign election interference works best when it has allies in the country that they're interfered with. Now, the allies don't have to be Formal allies, but they can be complicit through their own behavior if you're not actually dealing with it or if you deal it in the wrong way. So, one of the reasons why this has all come out is there's apparently at least one person who works either in or near the intelligence enterprise who is upset that the liberals have not acted on this. That's the perception. Mm-hmm. And so, there's two parts to that. One is have the liberals really not been handling this stuff well because maybe they don't want to confront it because they've been helped by it. And any, any, if they confront it, then it makes them look bad. So that's the first question. The second question we'll get to, which is sort of, you know, what the, the actions of the of the leaker. So first, there's there's this perception that the liberals have sat on this rather than acting. And it might just be the liberals sitting on everything before they act or it might be that that the concern like in the United States the republicans really didn't want to push the russia inquiry about trump because they also got assistance from the russians.
1: Yeah, so I don't I don't think anyone has has come to the conclusion that the foreign interference on the part of the people's republic of china was determining uh, the outcome of the of, of the overall election either 2019 or 2021. And I actually think it's 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 uh not the case in my opinion that the that the liberals have sat on this because they were the, the beneficiaries of that foreign interference. I actually think that that the Liberals can be and should be criticized for uh, not being as robust in their response. I think that there are certain activities that we even spoke, you and I, earlier on, on battle rhythms. I think when we were talking about the, mm-hmm. the Chinese quote-unquote police stations that exist, both of us went on that, you know, how come the liberal government at the time, you know, wasn't PNGing or you know, expelling Chinese diplomats and consular officials at the time. So I think that there's there was plenty of scope for the liberals to be far more active. And I do think that it is legitimate to criticize the liberal party and the liberal government for, for not being far more robust in its response to the uh, information around uh, foreign interference, because that information dates back years. This isn't something that is, that is new. Uh, this is something that has been ongoing and, and have been a number of actors that have been involved in this for a long time. And in particular, I think that the foreign ministry could have been far more robust in, in showing Chinese diplomats and consular officials the door. You don't need to meet an evidentiary standard. The fact that the foreign minister went before the House of Committee and said, I don't have evidence to ask Chinese officials to leave. For me, it was kind of preposterous. You don't need evidence. You don't need any rationale at all. In fact, and, and, it, and the reason why you put people out the door is because you have a, a threshold of, of information that can be relatively low and you want to send a political signal and they chose not to. And I think they can be rightly criticized for that uh, without sort of making the assumption that the reason why they're they, they are pulling their punches is because they feel that they have benefited from, uh, uh, from the interference themselves. You know, I, I often feel that, uh, you know, why ascribe to malfeasance uh, as rationale when incompetence is, uh, is quite frankly, a good enough rationale to explain uh, weird behavior.
0: Sure. But I, I get the idea that maybe it didn't determine the overall outcome of the election, but the help from China or the harm from China seemed targeted. Now in this election that was targeting, it seems to be the case, trying to hurt conservatives and help liberals, not, not necessarily in the past, but in this particular election. And so maybe it didn't swing all the seats, but maybe it swung one or two, or maybe you know, elections are all about politicians running scared as the phrase from political science. Mm-hmm. They're always they're always worried about every possible vote. So if some get pushed in a different direction because of outsiders, it might make the beneficiaries of that want to avoid uh, engaging in it and to have a serious conversation about it. So I don't think that, the, again, the, the liberals were like, oh, no, our, our, our election is illegitimate. Although certainly they want to make sure that, that people don't think that. But they may also not want to stir up a hornet's nest because... They happen to be closer to the horniness nest than others at this moment in time, even as the Chinese Communist Party uh, might have helped out the conservatives in previous elections.
1: Look, I think it's important to look at what was actually done. So I think that, again, you can you can have a, a legitimate and effective conversation about whether or not the liberals did enough. And I would argue, no, they did not. But uh, to say that they did nothing is also not accurate, right? Uh, I think if you look back at the elections in 2019 and in 2021, uh, the government of Canada put in place a number of measures aimed at addressing the specific threat of foreign interference. Uh, Organizations that I was part of, for example, the communication security establishment, issued threat assessments specifically about the democratic uh, processes and the elections. The national security intelligence community met with representatives of political parties to speak about the threats. So there were measures that were, were put in place to try and address it. The question becomes around whether or not there was an effective warning when certain uh, activities in, in specific ridings rose to a, a certain threshold. And I think this is where uh, Morris Rosenberg, in terms of his review of the panel of five, was the the, the body that was asked to warn Canadians in, in, in the case of, of a threat to the elections. Um, Mr. Rosenberg actually did uh, talk about that we need to have a good conversation about w- what the thresholds are and whether the thresholds that the panel used to make a decision not to talk to Canadians about uh, about the threat Are too high. Because again, there is a reticence on the part of of senior public servants. And again, this panel of five, it represents the most senior national security public servants in in, in Canada. They decided not to speak out, even though there was some information that some writings uh, were, you know, were being affected by by foreign interference. So the question that that needs to be, I think, addressed and why keep on calling for a public inquiry, and I think others have as well, is to discuss things like those thresholds, because I think of many public servants, particularly during an election period where something called the caretaker convention, uh, which uh, limits the activities that government can do during uh, an electoral period, they're very, very uh, small C conservative and risk averse uh, in terms of public uh, public announcements. No. And I know that many of them would have reflected on the effect that, for example, the, uh, the disclosure by uh, by the former FBI director uh Comey uh, in the US <laughs> had on on the election in 2016, when he announced, you know, a week before the election that he was reopening an investigation into, you know, the accusations uh, against Hillary Clinton related to emails, uh, that 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 had an effect on the outcome of the election. we even have Canadian examples of that when, you know, Commissioner Zaccardelli of the RCMP announced an investigation into the Liberals just prior, I think it was in 2005, 2006, that resulted in the first Harper uh, government. So there's a history of, of public service making statements that do profoundly affect an election. And the question becomes, which is the bigger harm? Uh, And where do you, you know, how do you balance that off? And I think that's where some independent nonpartisan review of those decisions would be helpful in telling Canadians what the thresholds are when they can expect government to tell them that interference is taking place that is having an effect.
0: I guess the, the thing I'm a cynical about, is a nonpartisan review process can provide us all kinds of information and then the opposition parties and the government of the day are not going to pay attention to it and they'll just amp the disinformation uh, because it's in their in their interest to do so.
1: Yeah, but right now we're having all the amping without the actual effective review. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, I'd rather, you know, throw the effective review into the mix uh, and, you know, let the cards fall where they may. Governments then are are completely uh, accountable for the decisions they make and political parties are accountable for the policies that they advance. But at the end of the day, what Canadians will have in front of them it will hopefully be a a, a series of recommendations uh, that are put forward by someone with uh you know a, a impeccable credentials that will give us a roadmap on how to uh address the threats to our elections the status quo is not helpful the status quo is is uh is in fact undermining Canadians confidence and we need to address that and you know if if at the end of that process political parties decide not to to, uh, to implement some of those recommendations, Canadians will have a transparent uh, uh, mm-hmm. ability to assess those decisions and then let the electoral consequences be what they may.
0: Okay, and so we now have David Johnson, the former governor general and former chancellor of McGill. He was chancellor when I was there, leading this review. Is this good enough? Is he impactful enough? He's packed... He's impeccable.
1: He is impeccable. But what he's been asked to do as the special rapporteur is essentially make the decision for the government whether an inquiry is needed. Uh, He's not actually uh, tasked with reviewing uh, the activities itself. And that's what you know. There's some level of, of of usefulness in creating distance between the prime minister deciding what the scope and scale and mandate of a, of an inquiry is, so, because if it was the prime minister making that decision himself or the government exclusively making that decision, they they would invariably be be criticized for that because of the the perception of self interest. So having the, the former governor general and the former chancellor of McGill, somebody who is who is you know uh, both has got good credentials with. Um, with the Conservative Party and others, he was named by Prime Minister Harper as the the governor general, make that recommendation makes sense. But I think that giving the the person two months to decide whether or not an inquiry is is appropriate and then up to October of this year to, to wrap up their work If they don't think is appropriate, I think that that process is not helpful. I think uh, the the former governor general, Mr. Johnson, should make a recommendation quickly and that his recommendation should be focused. on what the terms of reference and the uh, of the investigation or the inquiry should be mm-hmm. and it should also talk about what the relationship should be between that inquiry and ongoing investigations that are being undertaken by the national security and intelligence review agency and the national security intelligence committee of parliamentarians because there needs to be coherence between all of these processes so that at the end of the day, Canadians can have confidence that we looked appropriately back at what happened and that we have good recommendations moving forward to ensure that, the, that our system is resilient to the kind of threats it's under right now and will continue to be into the future unless we address them more effectively
0: okay one last item on this before we move on to other topics which is the experts on intelligence stuff have been very upset not just at the media for how they've covered this stuff but also at the individual or individuals who are leaking it's always the case that people are upset about leaks and and blame leakers sometimes the leakers are doing stuff that needs to be done sometimes they're doing stuff that is problematic I think most problematic are the people like Ed Snowden and Chelsea Manning who just sort of download everything and then put it out in the world without any thought to the consequences. In this case, I guess you're suggesting that what I've heard from you in, in Twitter and elsewhere is you don't think this person is deep throat. It's not somebody who, who released information that had to be released, but instead is doing real damage.
1: I think so. Uh, so let me uh, start off by saying that I think that whistleblowing is absolutely essential in a governmental context. When wrongdoing happens within government, when people uh, break the law, when there is inappropriate and profligate spending, when the institutions that are that this person or persons might work for are, are behaving badly and outside their their mandates and outside the rule of law, I absolutely think that whistleblowing uh, that. Is uh, is something that needs to be protected, supported, and I would welcome it. That's not what's happening here. So even if we take the the, the person uh, who wrote the op-ed in the Globe and Mail a while ago, uh, who was granted anonymity, uh, who who claimed an altruistic motive that they wanted to protect Canadian democracy, I think that that's just it's it's a load of nonsense in in, in my opinion. Uh, if you've worked inside the intelligence community for more than five minutes. One understands that one provides intelligence to senior decision makers all the time that's never acted upon or that's acted upon at a pace that is not necessarily one that you, as a member of the intel community, would like to see happen. That's just that's just the way it is. It's nothing exceptional about it because there's a lot of factors that go into policymaking, and intelligence is just one of them. And we have to understand the role of intelligence in that policy development process. So I, I have absolutely you know zero time for someone who is who has access, if they are a member of the intel national security intelligence community, who has access to information that is collected through very particular means, exceptional means that are granted to the intelligence community in order to fulfill a specific mandate, which is to inform policymakers. Where those processes are, you know, are truly, you know, not available to anyone else in in the, in Canadian society, and they put them out in the public domain in a way then that has profound consequences on both individuals and communities, because the source of that information apparently has, you know, has the 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 imprimatur the the validation of the government of Canada, but yet the persons who are affected by that have no due process, have no ability to defend themselves in terms of of the information that's put out into the the public domain, and no presumption of innocence. So the harm is already caused in a deep, deep way without any of the other constraints that that are usually Mm -hmm. applied to government when it makes accusations against individuals. So, you know, the harm is real. And that's why I even said even if the accusations are true, the consequences of this kind of behavior are deeply problematic for me from an ethical, from a legal uh, and from just like as a from a public service point of view. As a Canadian, I don't like, uh, you know, institutions of state behaving like the KGB during the Soviet era, providing, you know, like, you know, disclosures to select media in order to uh, to damage uh, uh, individuals or organizations or entities that don't necessarily behave uh, in a way that they want them to behave. That's not how we work in a democracy. And I think there is real consequences for us longer term around the kind of behavior that the, this person or persons uh, exhibited.
0: These things are often very tricky. For me,
1: it's not tricky. Like literally when when I first became a a, a member of the the national security intelligence community, I remember uh, I had a person come into my office with a series of forms that explained to me my obligations. (laughs) around keeping things classified yeah. the consequences of disclosure for for the enterprise and for canadians and the consequences for me as an individual should i choose to violate the law there's no ambiguity in it and this applies to all of us within the within the community for a reason well actually for multiple reasons and that's why i uh, you know uh, accused the person who decided that the entire system is is too slow for their uh, for their taste with narcissism because they decided individually or in a small cohort that they were frustrated with the system and therefore bah I don't care about the legal framework I'm going to uh, to shine a light on this because I'm not happy with how government is working well that that's not how we keep the rule of law and how we we keep accountability and appropriate constraints on national security and intelligence, the costs of that, again, I think are far greater than the potential consequences of, of not being as quick as this person would have liked with mitigating the effects of foreign interference.
0: What I meant by tricky, sorry, it's okay,
1: <laughs> is is
0: that there's a guy, Mike Coloresi, wrote a wrote a good book about the basic challenge of democracies require transparency, Operating international international relations and also domestic stuff, but international relations mainly requires secrecy. And so, how do you manage that that conf- that contradiction, right? And you mentioned in your comments a panoply of institutions that should be taking care of this: Nisra, the review, uh, Nisicop, which has been undermined by the conservatives because of the the Manitoba lab thing. But we have institutions that are supposed to be taking care of this for us. So that way, we don't need to have secrets blasted out in the media because these other people have access to secrets. And it raises a question or an issue I've been studying for a while now, which is how can legislatures oversee the armed forces if they can't see their secret stuff? And in my conversations with the members of parliament, and this speaks to the maturity of our political system, is they basically argued that the incentives of the system mean that they'd rather talk a lot about things they don't know, then to know more, but then have to be responsible about that that information. And we see that here, right, which is, all the parties ha- are incentivized to to ramble on and make accusations about each other in ways that are bad for the system, bad for us. But they're incentivized to do yeah. rather than letting the process play out with Nizikop, right? And Nizikop and Nizira, they can look into this, they can figure out, you know, whether what was going on here, and then they can issue reports that we can then see that would then tell us. But there's distrust of Nizikop because it, we all, it's it's committee of parliamentarians, they they are answerable. In some ways, to the to prime minister and not to parliament, because again, we can't for some reason just give a regular parliamentary committee without any special doodads or, or adjustments. We just can't give them security clearances for them to do their job, because again, they don't want it. They would rather talk in question period about things they don't know about, and so we have Westminster brothers and sisters who take this stuff far more seriously. One of the lessons of the Steve, Dave, and Phil project on legislatures and militaries is that you don't have to transform yourself to the United States or you don't have to transform yourself to Germany to, to do better oversight. You just have to take a look at what those with similar institutions have done to try to adapt. But it requires a level of maturity by the politicians. It requires a little bit less party discipline, which is one of the key factors that makes kind of distinct from some other countries. I just want to put that, that on the table, that the tricky thing is the basic structures of our democracy, which do not provide incentives for politicians to be responsible. Yeah, that's
1: that's fair enough. And I think part of the problem is, uh, is actually that the institutions that would be the subject of oversight have been uh, far too opaque and far more committed to maintaining secrecy than they need to. I think that we need to err more and more on the part of transparency, so that Canadians and then in turn the the people elected to represent them have a better understanding of what intelligence is, how it's managed, uh, what the priorities are. You can do all that in a far more transparent manner than we have today. And I actually think that 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 lack of transparency is what what has compounded the partisanship of the conversation that we're having right now. You know, if if the national security and intelligence advisor, if the director of uh, of, of CSIS and, you know, Deputy Minister of Public Safety and all, you know, the Deputy Minister of, of National Defense appeared more regularly before open parliamentary committees in an unclassified environment to talk about the threat, to talk about the, uh, the information environment that they have been asked to help manage through the collection of intelligence. I think then you would have a far more mature political culture in Canada as it relates to uh, to intelligence and national security and defense. But we don't because we, you know, we have a bunch of folks that are saying that, you know, you can't handle the truth because it's so sensitive and classified. <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, you, you then expect the population and parliamentarians to take you at your word when, quite frankly, your word has been so exceptional and so opaque over, over many, many years that there's no basis for that trust. So, you know, I, I completely agree with you when we we need to, to have more transparency and more engagement on the part of senior leaders with parliament, uh, because I think it's only through that more regular engagement that you, I think, have a more tempered and mature conversation. Right now there is no no benefit for parliamentarians to have that kind of tempered conversation because they you know they literally see no votes in this in this process. but I think if they had a better and more robust understanding of what was at stake then and I think over time we could have more effective parliamentary oversight, not simply review of what's happening. And I think that that's part of the challenge in Canada is people don't even understand what the difference between oversight and review is. And they, they use those words interchangeably. And, well, that's
0: and my it, fault because I. <laughs> this is a conversation where in Canada, the the intel folks like you and Stephanie and Leah have a very specific notion of what oversight is. And it's not the way scholars in the rest of the world use it. And it's not the way Americans and other people think about it. But it's the way your specific community thinks about oversight, which then helps to create a lot of confusion.
1: Well, I mean, I think there, you know, oversight in the U.S. is really, I mean, this is one of the things when I was a NPSIA student many, many uh, years ago, uh, I did a paper comparing Canada, the U.S., France and the United Kingdom in terms of, uh, of oversight and review processes. This was back in like you know the, the late 1990s, early 2000s or so years ago. And what was interesting for me was like how robust oversight is in the legislature in the United States, where you have both Senate and House of Representatives committees with the the means and the mandates to look at policies and and programs of the intelligence community as part of the budgetary process uh, to decide whether or not they will fund them. So it's, it's far more intrusive in terms of the operations of those organizations before those organizations undertake their activities. We have none of that from a legislative review process in in Canada, and I think that uh, it will take some time before we have the same kind of expertise and knowledge in our parliament, you know, that would be able to do that effectively, which uh, already exists because it's been happening in the U.S. and the and the U.K. for for many 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 years.
0: Well, they'll have to read the David Stephen Phil book uh, on on this. I'm sure, they will. The on the military side of things, and they'll have to read. Yeah. The Stephanie Carvin books, sometimes with Thomas Jernot, sometimes with other people on, on the stuff for the intelligence side of things. Yeah, uh, But I can't tell you how many times I've gotten arguments with Stephanie about the meaning of the word oversight. Anyway, <laughs> time to move on. Sure. S- since you've been adequately animated by everything else. Let's bring a more subtle, quiet topic of which we have no opinions about, the recent events in Israel. It's about the protests and about Benjamin Netanyahu developing legislation that would change the powers of Israel's Supreme Court. One could argue the prime minister is trying to usurp power from one of the checks on his power, and it's led to massive massive protests in Israel, something like 16% of the population has been out in the streets. And the concern was that he's trying to follow the playbook of Viktor Orban and maybe of Poland to undermine the court so that way he can get away with the stuff that he's been getting away with. And for me, before I I unleash somebody who knows more about Israel than I do, for me, what has impressed me about this or as I've noticed about this, there's a couple of Civ Mill angles to this. One is a lot of the pushback the last couple of weeks, or a lot of the protests has been people in the military basically saying, I'm not going to participate in the military. I'm not going to fly. I'm not going to my plane. I'm not going to do this. We have large segments of the military are challenging the elected leader of the country. So that looks bad from a civil mill perspective. But what looks worse from a Civ Mill perspective is that the deal that was made last night or yesterday to not follow through with this, was simply a stay in execution, essentially. That we're, well, that Benjamin Netanyahu was like, okay, well, we'll, we'll put this off for now. We'll come back to it in the summer. And by the way, we're also going to do something like create militias so that way my partisans can attack Palestinians more freely and maybe also attack my political opposition more freely so this looks bad from a lot of perspectives since you have been you know very interested in what goes on in Israel Arthur I think you probably have some things to say about this
1: well just again I'm deeply and profoundly concerned by what's happening in, uh, in in Israel I think that the election of the current coalition government has brought together forces that have key personalities within positions of power that are anti-democratic in their in their nature, that are racist, that are homophobic. So personalities like Ben Gvir, who's the minister of uh, of, of, of national security, and Smotrich, who's uh, the finance minister, these are individuals represent a trend in Israeli society and Israeli politics that is profoundly, uh, in my opinion, problematic because it's inherently. Uh, racist and and uh, these folks now are in positions of authority within uh, within the uh, Israeli political system. What, one has to see the proposals around judicial review in light of their of their presence in the uh, the government, because the the judicial reforms that have been proposed are meant to change the nature of the relationship between the legislature and the judiciary in Israel by making it you know, easy for the legislature to override any kind of Supreme Court decision with a simple majority vote in the Knesset. This is and- sounding
0: familiar. They would call it a notwithstanding clause.
1: Well, it's different than the notwithstanding clause, because first of all, the notwithstanding clause was adopted as part of a constitutional change in the, in Canada that was subject to a, a far higher threshold where Canadians were able to, you know, the representatives, the prime minister, the premiers of the provinces came to an, an agreement that this was the way that we would mitigate or put limits on judicial activism was the, the existence of Section 33 of the Charter of Rights or the notwithstanding clause. But the notwithstanding clause also had has limits in that it's only in effect for 5 years and it requires consistent you know review uh, by the legislature if if uh, an an exclusion or an exemption uh, to to fundamental rights is uh is is constrained by uh by by the parliament it also limits what section 33 applies to it's not the entire provisions of the mm-hmm. of, of of the constitution it's more narrowly focused and again it exists because there was a broad consensus that it that it should be part of our of our judicial system that's not what's happening in in Israel it is literally a government that is looking through a simple majority in parliament to fundamentally change you know uh, its relationship between orders of government in in a democracy and that in and of itself is is profoundly challenging when you make it a simple majority vote the entire reason why you have courts that are there to protect minorities and protect you know individual rights and the rule of law against mob rule is that you you empower the courts in an effective way to be the arbiters of those things and that's been undermined in, in Israel through these proposals and again that's been compounded by who the characters are who are going to be making those those rules where again the, the current uh, coalition between Likud and other organizations like religious zionism which is Smotrich's party and Ben Ben-Gvir who is a former disciple of uh, you know one of the most problematic uh, you know nationalists uh, and, and terrorists in some regards, you know, you know Kahana, who, who is deeply problematic. These are folks now that have power in Israel. And that's why so many in Israeli society are, are, are mad. Um, and uh, yeah, I want to go back to your point around the role of the military and civ-mil relations, because it's absolutely essential. What precipitated the most recent crisis uh, was, the, was the firing by Netanyahu of one of his party mates, uh, who was the minister of defense, Galant, who basically told the prime minister in public, that based on the reaction and the effects that these proposals are having on Israeli society, he said, stop them, because there isn't consensus. And it's affecting the operational readiness of, of the Israeli armed forces in, in responding to the threats. You, act, you saw you know, Israeli special operating forces joining the protests. You saw members of the Israeli intelligence community joining the protests. Diplomats have been speaking out. There was a general strike. And all of this was being precipitated by the Minister of National Defense saying, taken a step too far. And the the problem is, as you pointed out, is the compromise, i.e. I will back down for the next little while, is just, you know, kicking the can a little bit down the road in terms of the the conflict. Uh, because that what what has happened is that the prime minister has said that they will take this up again in the next session of parliament, the summer session of the Knesset. And in the meantime, in order to buy him that uh, those several weeks of of respite from voting on this in the Knesset, he has granted Ben Ben Gvir uh, the creation under his portfolio of, like you said, of a militia, and you know, this raises all kinds of of problems about you know accountability you know decision making and whether or not these individuals will be appropriately constrained as they should be in a way that enhances israeli democracy and protects the rights of all citizens of israel jewish non-jewish uh you know religious secular the full full gamut of israeli uh, israeli society and it, and i think it's that cleavage right now in israel that's causing such a profound angst amongst Israelis and why they're coming out in the hundreds of thousands in the streets of not only Tel Aviv but Jerusalem, Ashdod, uh, Beersheba, all across the country.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In in in, sing, in you know and pointing out their concern and why so many of us in the diaspora in the in the, in the Jewish community diaspora are also profoundly concerned by uh, by what's happening in in Israel because it, it affects all of us in one way or another.
0: And just a couple other angles on this to consider. You know, when you talk about the people who are doing this, it's not just Netanyahu has assembled a coalition of people who are, are truly awful. It's also Netanyahu has been in the court many times lately for uh, being suspected of corruption and things like that. And so it sure as hell looks to the outside that he wants to subvert the court so that way he can continue to abuse his power. So that makes it particularly ugly, and that's part of it. But on the, on the flip side of it is we've gotten to a point in Israeli politics where to form a government, it becomes very, very difficult in general, and it almost absolutely requires you to put in people into government who should never have been elected or anywhere near government in the first place. But because of how events of the past twenty years has pushed the entire country to the right, that there's not much of a left opposition, that the possibilities for Netanyahu to put together a coalition really tie his hands. You know, so maybe the government will fall over this, but. It's going to be the same, you know, the same pieces are going to have to be put back into place and maybe in a different order under a new government. You know, would would new elections shift the country to the middle?
1: It's hard to tell. I mean, Israeli politics are are complicated because of the the system of of, of proportional representation, which is you know pretty uh, extreme in terms of the spectrum of choices around around proportional representation, where you have a relatively low threshold to get uh get seats in uh, in the Knesset, and the Knesset can be fairly you know fairly divided in terms of the various demographic segments of the Israeli population. I think part of the problem rests in you know in terms of the balance between left and right uh, in Israel has been the, that the left has been politically, uh, you know, quite splintered. So if you looked at the aggregate of votes uh, between left and and right, pretty well evenly split. It's just the efficiency of the vote on the right has resulted in more seats in the Knesset than the efficiency of votes on on the left. Now, is it possible that these, you know, that these protests and the the crisis over over the judicial reform is going to change the constellation of votes? It may compel, I think, some of those left-leaning parties to be a little bit more, you know, coherent and perhaps maybe less splintered by by joining forces in terms of electoral politics to get seats in the Knesset that will rebalance things, but it's uh, it, it's hard to see uh, right now in in the chaos that is uh, that is emerged from the, from the process. And you're right, I think people need to be supremely skeptical about uh, Netanyahu's motives from this because he does have a very very personal vested interest in the change in uh, in the judicial system, one that will protect uh, you know protect him and potentially insulate him from prosecution for uh, for corruption and you know israel has effectively prosecuted former leaders presidents have served time in jail for for corruption so there's real jeopardy for him personally you know if these reforms don't go through the problem is that when you take that very narcissistic self-centered interest that he brings to the table together with individuals like Ben Gvir and Smotrich that are just plain old-fashioned bigots uh, who would like to subvert the courts because they view that the courts have have provided too many rights to minorities, uh, to women, to Arab citizens of, uh, of Israel. You put those things together and you end up with a pretty toxic brew. And that's why so many Israelis are fundamentally concerned about the effect of this reform on their democracy and are out there protesting so uh, so vigorously against what the current coalition government is trying to do
0: okay well we're gonna have to leave it at that because uh, we've been talking for quite a while we okay. were going to talk about haiti but i think we can skip that for now because the canadians basically made the decision not, not to send to. troops and that was something that we all predicted ahead of time. We're not going to talk about which ice cream Joe Biden had during the, you know, during his visit. Although I, it was notable they went to Mushu, which is an ice cream shop that did face much coercion during the occupation. So mm. I'm not sure it was an accident that was chosen. I mean, there are other ice cream shops in Ottawa, but we'll have to leave it at that. Arthur, it's always a pleasure. You're one of the busiest people in show business. I think it's my fault for giving you a high VORP score that your value above the replacement pundit is extraordinarily high. So it's understandable. Sometimes when people retire from government and then start speaking, you're like, they have nothing to say or they're not gonna say anything interesting. You're an important voice out there on these issues and, and you have really contributed to clarifying a complex mess with this partner interference stuff. I'm sure you're gonna be doing a lot more of that in the future. And so enjoy your retirement. That is not so restful.
1: <laughs> thanks Steve, really appreciate. I also very uh, much appreciate and uh, humbled by your uh, your your support and your valuing my contribution and and thanks so much for inviting me to be a, a co-host every once in a while.
0: Terrific.